Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. It's our hope that this message will help you grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Great to be here tonight. My parents are actually in, uh, in Cabo right now. They're taking a little time to relax after all the stuff that's been going on lately. So I got a call from my dad just a little bit ago and he said that he misses you guys. He loves you guys. I can't wait to get back to be here to teach uh, very soon. Um, but to pray for him, they're just relaxing. He said it's beautiful there and uh, he appreciates your prayers and I uh, can't wait to get back here. But he has left you in my hands tonight. So that might be scary, but... Uh, Let's see what happens. Go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Psalm 22. Psalm 22. Let's go ahead and open up with a word of prayer. Lord God, we come before you tonight as we open up your word, Lord. We know any time we open your word and we read, God, this inspired book that so many people penned, all with the same message, that you are Lord and Savior sent your only son Jesus Christ to die for our sins and through that death Lord we can have new life God tonight as we look at Psalm 22 a profound piece of scripture Lord that is a prophecy of you coming down to this earth and dying for our sins Lord I pray that you will change our hearts you will change our lives we won't leave this place the same God we will leave renewed transformed with something different about us I pray that you'll open our eyes to get a new outlook a new perspective on your death, Lord. In your precious name we pray. Amen. Well, I've entitled the message tonight, Forsaken by God. Now, I know when you hear those words, it's like, oh my gosh, that is not a warm and cuddly message title, is it? Forsaken by God. You know, it's not what we want to hear when we come to church. When we come to church, we don't want to hear forsaken by God. We want to hear accepted by God. We want to hear comforted by God, maybe even coddled by God. He's just going to like rub our little heads and say, you know, sweet nothings to us. And we, we don't want to hear forsaken by God. That's where we're going to look tonight, forsaken by God. And I want to ask you a question. Have you ever felt all alone, deserted by family and friends, like no one understands you? Has it ever seemed like even God has abandoned and forsaken you? And I know we all go through those times where we ask God, Lord, why am I in this desert? Where are your promises? Where's your love? Where's all the great verses of the Bible? Why can't I have those ones right now? You feel like your prayers aren't being heard like he has given up on you. And this is a feeling that many of us go through and that we feel throughout our lives. And if you felt that way before, then you have a very, very, very vague idea of what Jesus Christ felt like on the worst day of his life on earth. The day that he hung on the cross and the day that he took all the sins of the entire world upon himself and he became sin for us. Jesus felt this way. He felt alone. He felt abandoned. The day that he cried out, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? As he hung on the cross, bearing our sins. Now, before we move any further, it's important to understand that if you are a child of God, if you've accepted Jesus Christ into your heart, you have never been and you will never be forsaken by God. And you know, sometimes, however, we think that God really has forsaken us, don't we? We think that he isn't there. And apparently we've forgotten the cute little picture in our bathroom and the footprints in the sand poem. And we, we forget about all those great things. 
But you know, the, the truth is, the reality is, that God really is there for us every step of the way. He doesn't forsake us. He doesn't leave us. He really does care. And Jesus made sure of this. He was not heard that we might be heard. The ear of God was turned from him for a time so that it might never be closed to us. And Psalm 22 here before us is one of the most dramatic and detailed descriptions of what happened to Jesus when he died on the cross to be found in all of scriptures. And what's incredible about that is that in many ways, the description we have before us is more detailed than many of the gospels. And this book, this psalm was written 1,000 years before the actual crucifixion ever took place. As we know, David wrote this psalm and he penned these words far before Jesus was ever even a thought to the Jewish people. Before Jesus was ever even an idea to the Jewish people. And the fact that such a description is found here is amazing. Because we also have to remember, the Jews did not practice crucifixion. So this horrible form of death was devised by the Medes, the Persians, and the Assyrians. And then it trickled and it flowed throughout the East. And finally the Romans got a hold of it. And they got it from the Phoenicians. But crucifixion wasn't even practiced in this time period by the Jewish people. It wasn't even something talked about. And yet we'll see in just a moment, this psalm gives us a vivid image. A vivid picture of Jesus Christ hanging on the cross. And it reads as an eyewitness account of the events of the day of the crucifixion. And it's one of the most amazing messianic prophecies to be found in scripture. So let's read Psalm chapter 22, starting in verse 1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from helping me and from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry in the daytime, but you do not hear. And in the night season, and am not silent, but you are holy enthroned in the praises of Israel. Our fathers trusted in you. They trusted and you delivered them. They cried to you and were delivered. They trusted in you and were not ashamed. But I am a worm and no man, a reproach of men and despised by the people. All those who see me ridicule me. They shoot out the lip. They shake the head saying, he trusted in the Lord. Let him rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. But you are he who took me out of the womb. You made me trust while on my mother's breasts. I was cast upon you from birth. From my mother's womb you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near. For there is none to help. Many bulls have surrounded me. Strong bulls of Bashan have encircled me. They gape at me with their mouths like a raging and roaring lion. I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax, it has melted within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue clings to my jaws. You have brought me to the dust of death. For dogs have surrounded me. The congregation of the wicked has enclosed me. They pierce my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They look and stare at me. They divide my garments among them, and my clothing they cast lots. But you, O Lord, do not be far from me. O my strength, hasten to help me. Deliver me from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the lion's mouth and from the horns of the wild oxen. You have answered me. So go back to verse 1. Now we see right there in verse 1, it starts with a phrase very familiar to us. 
A phrase familiar to us because Jesus Christ said it the day that he died. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, when Jesus hung on the cross, he uttered seven statements and they're rightly called the seven statements of Christ. And you could spend an entire series talking about these statements, how profound each one of them are. But let's take a moment and quickly look at each one. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me was the fourth. The first was a prayer to his father for for the forgiveness of the ones who had been responsible for the act of crucifixion. And it's incredible to note that even as Jesus was dying, a horrible and gruesome death at their hands, his concern was still not for his body, but for their souls. He said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Even as they were killing him, he wasn't concerned for his needs, he was concerned for their need. Their need for forgiveness. Their need for redemption. Their need for justification. And as he said those words, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. You know, I've got to be honest with you. If a bunch of people from here decided to hang me on a cross and do the things that they did to Jesus Christ, that would not be my response. It would be more like, Lord, curse them. Lord, knock their teeth out of their mouth. Destroy them. You know, I probably would have read like some of the Psalms of David. Lord, you know, make them go away. It would not be, Lord, forgive them. And yet Jesus Christ as he was being inflicted so much pain and suffering at the hands of these men, his response was, forgive them, as he hangs on the cross, slowly dying. And this is why it blows me away when I hear people say that God is out to get them. Have you met those people? God's out to get me. You know, he's just trying to find ways to ruin my life. Like God is some kind of big bully. Or like how Bruce Almighty puts it, God is a mean kid sitting on an anthill with a magnifying glass, and I'm the ant. You know, it's funny, but some people actually think that God is that mean kid on an anthill. A lot of people view God that way, like he's just a big bully, a cosmic killjoy, trying to ruin our lives, find ways to ruin our fun and make us miserable. It couldn't be more opposite than that. He desires to forgive you. He desires to love you. He desires to have a relationship with you. And I hear people tell me all the time, well, you don't know what I've done, Nate. God couldn't forgive me. Really. These people killed God and he forgave them. You really think that anyone can beat that? You really think that on your list of sins you committed before you became a Christian, that something's going to top killing God? I don't think so. These people killed God and his response was, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. His second statement was a personal assurance to the repentant thief who said, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus responded with those beautiful words. Today you will be with me in paradise. What a beautiful assurance, isn't that? What a beautiful statement. It's the assurance that every believer has that to be absent from the body is to be present with God. There's so much joy found in that statement. So much comfort there. You know, people say all the time that they fear death because of the unknown. Because they don't know what's going to happen afterwards. But we as Christians don't need to fear because we know. We know that there's a heaven. We know that God died for our sins. We know that through that death, he made it possible for us to join him. And we know that if we accept him and repent of our sins, then we can go to heaven. You know, I think that should be our motto as Christians. We know. 
We know. But I meet so many Christians that act like they don't know. I see so many people that when something happens in their life that they weren't expecting, when something difficult comes in their lives, they say, I just don't know how God could let this happen to me. I just don't understand. I just don't know. I can't fathom why this would happen. But our response should be, we know that God loves us. We know that God has a plan for us. We know that His thoughts for us are of good, not of evil. Thoughts to give us a future and a hope. We know that He is there with us. We know. And for that we can rejoice. That we know. Then looking down on His mother, standing at the foot of the cross, next to the Apostle John, He said, Woman, behold your son, and son, behold your mother. And then the Bible says that a mysterious darkness fell on the land for three long hours and Jesus was silent. The sun at this time was in the highest point of the day and it became completely dark. And Jesus, after saying these three statements, was completely silent. Man, you've got to imagine what it felt like there. The atmosphere, the environment, the unsettling feeling of being there at that moment. As for three hours, Jesus didn't utter a single word. We sit there and we wonder what what happened during those three hours. What was Jesus thinking? What were the Romans doing? How did his followers feel? And then the silence was broken by these words of Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now we're looking at something here that in many ways is impossible for us as human beings to understand. I agree with Martin Luther, who after having studied this exact verse for many hours, got up from his chair in desperation and said, God forsaking God, who can understand it? And I, and I agree. It doesn't make sense. We read that and we immediately say contradiction. You know, it's a contradiction there. How can he forsake himself? And the truth is, our minds aren't big enough to understand this profound idea. And I believe that this is something we will never truly understand. We will never truly grasp until we get to heaven. And people will debate and fight and kvetch about it for their entire lives. And their kids will do it. And their grandkids will do it until the Lord returns. You know what we're going to find out? Nothing. We're still not going to understand it. We're still not going to grasp it of exactly what it means. Of exactly what the verse is saying. But there are things we do know. We do know that the Bible teaches that God is one in essence and one nature. He is one God. And yet there are three separate parts. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And the Trinity isn't bursting into two here. There's not a Trinitarian divorce going on. You know, Jesus sitting there, well, God, you know, I just really hurt that you've done this. And God saying, well, Jesus, you just need to be more submissive. And then Jesus saying, well, I'm taking my things and leaving and I don't want to be around you anymore. No, there's not a Trinitarian divorce happening in this scripture. Instead, what's happening is a breach of fellowship that doesn't show a breach of essence. There's a breach of fellowship. And clearly, as we look at this verse, we're treading on holy ground, looking at such a subject. And yet it's so important and so vital to our lives that we need to look into it. Because I believe that if we can better understand what Jesus Christ actually went through for us, what horrendous pain he experienced, it will only give us a greater appreciation for him and for what he's done for us. Have you ever spent... Just a couple hours thinking about what Jesus Christ did for you. Not thinking about anything else, but just pondering 
what Christ did for you. I remember when I first watched The Passion. Man, it, it knocked me off my feet. And I remember just sobbing in the movie and just crying as I got a clear, vivid image of what Jesus Christ went through. And then I remember a couple of weeks ago, I was looking on YouTube and I found this video that had clips of the passion put to a song. And, and I felt like a baby, like I was just sitting there bawling, watching this clip on YouTube. And I realized that's the proper response that we as Christians should have to the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. That Jesus Christ would come down and sacrifice his life for us rotten sinners. And so often, you know, we're told, do this in remembrance of me, but we don't know what to associate that with. See, when they were told that, do this in remembrance of me, they would remember for the rest of their lives seeing their Lord and Savior crucified on that cross. You wouldn't have to, you know, make images or make movies to get them to remember that. That would be clearly stuck in their mind forever. But we in this modern generation so often forget what Jesus Christ did for us when he died on the cross. What he accomplished on the cross. What it meant when he took our sin upon himself. And when we think about it, it should blow our minds. That a perfect God would come to a flawed world and die for a group of flawed people. And what can we do to repay him? Nothing. What can we do to justify that great sacrifice? Nothing. When Jesus cried out these words, they weren't the delusions of a man in pain. His faith was not failing him like so many people today when we go through a difficult time. We we think that God doesn't care. And we begin to doubt God and our faith fails. These are the words of a man who literally was forsaken by God. He was merely stating the truth of the situation. And once again, it should be noted that this is not the way that God deals with his own when they go through life's hardest moments. As a matter of fact, it's during those moments that he reveals himself to us in a very special way. Just as he did with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Remember the story? When they were in the worst situation possible. And the Lord came and he stood with them as they were in the furnace. Or to the young Stephen, as he was being martyred for his faith, he saw a heavenly vision of Jesus. Or to Paul, who the Lord said, my strength shows itself the strongest during moments of weakness. This is something that the father had to do specifically in the life of the son for a very specific purpose. See, Jesus did this so that we could come back into the relationship that he desired to have with us from the very beginning. The relationship that was forfeited many thousand years ago in the garden. See, God's plan wasn't for us to be fallen. God's plan wasn't for us to live lives that are destructive to ourselves. God's plan was to be in a relationship with us. And speaking of this very moment, the scripture says, He shall bear their iniquities. And He has been made to be sin for us. Notice, it doesn't say to be sinful for us. But it says to be sin. Jesus Christ, when he hung on that cross, became sin for us. As he died there on that cross, our sin died with him if we accept him into our hearts. But the question is, why was he forsaken? Did he not do what he was supposed to? Did he make the father angry? Was this like discipline and the the father was disciplining him? No, it couldn't be more opposite. As a matter of fact, the reason he was forsaken was because he did exactly what was needed. 
He did exactly what he was supposed to. And because he did what he was supposed to, this happened in his life. And in this moment, as Jesus hung there on the cross, a great gulf separated him from the holiness of the Father. God was holy, and Jesus was not sinful, never that. But he was sin for us. In this three-hour time period, Jesus was made disgusting for you. See, in this three hours before this statement was made, God the Father was transferring to Jesus' spiritual account all the sin of the entire world. All the sin that had ever been committed. All the sin that was being committed. All the sin that would be committed was transferred to Jesus Christ. Isaiah 53, 6 says, We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each one of us has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And God, in this moment, was viewing and treating his son Jesus as if he had personally committed every sin that would ever be committed. As if he had personally done every single one of them. Imagine for a moment, think about from the time when you were a little kid, all the sins you've committed, moving on, all the things you're ashamed of, all the things you're embarrassed about, all the things you don't want anyone in here to know about. Now take those and combine those with all the sins ever committed by everyone in this church. Then by everyone in this city. Combine those with everyone of this state, of this country, of this world. Those sins He bore for you. And the Father viewed Jesus as though He had committed every single one of them. Adam's apple. Cain's murder. Noah's drunkenness. Abraham's doubt. David's adultery. Samson's lust. Jonah's running. Uzziah's pride. Judas's betrayal. Peter's denial. All the way to the very guards that were hammering nine-inch metal spikes into his wrists and feet. Jesus was viewed as though he had committed every single one of those. And not just that, but God looked forward to every sin that would be committed. Every Jew that Adolf Hitler would burn. Every baby that would be aborted. Every marriage vow that would be broken. Every lie that would be told. Every porno that would be purchased. Every dollar that would be stolen. Every wife that would be beaten. Every child that would be molested. Jesus Christ took every sin that has ever been committed onto his shoulders. And as God viewed him, he became the most disgusting, filthy creature who had ever lived on the earth. And in that moment, the father couldn't even look at him. He was tasting death for us. Experiencing what every lost soul will experience in hell for all of eternity. He was experiencing what it meant to be abandoned by God in the dark. A pastor named Levi Lusco put it this way. Christ had to become wretched because we would never be able to sing amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found was blind. But now I see had he not become blind, become lost and become a wretch on the cross. He had to become the worst of what we are if we could ever become the best of what he is. In order for us to take part of the beauty that is salvation, 
of the glory that is heaven. Jesus Christ had to take all of our junk, all the stuff that separates us from him. He had no sin of his own, and yet the Bible says the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. Peter wrote, he his own self bore our sins in his own body on the tree. Sin. Sin, sin everywhere around him was sin in this dreaded moment. And to be forsaken by God was much more a source of anguish to Jesus than to anyone else. Because he was so absolutely holy. Never for one moment during his entire earthly life did he ever, even for a moment, step outside of deep, intimate fellowship with his father until now. You know, we are in contrast, sometimes hardened by sin. We don't even know that it's happening in our lives. We don't realize it, but we're slowly drifting out of fellowship with God unless we're making a conscious effort to grow. And Jesus was as spiritually sensitive and in tune with the Father as anyone could be. And that is why this was for Jesus a fate worse than death. The horrors of the crucifixion, which were considerable. The desertion by his followers... The mocking of the crowd, the pain of the flogging, all paled in comparison to this, the lowest moment of his short earthly ministry. And Jesus was clear of mind even to the very end. He bore up under the intense pain, the tremendous loss of blood, the insatiable thirst, the open mockery of those around him. And yet through all those tortures, he endured it in silence. Just as the Bible predicted He is led like a lamb to the slaughter. He opens not his mouth. He was silent. But when it came to being forsaken by God, it was more than he could bear. It wasn't, Peter, Peter, why have you denied me? Or Judas, Judas, why have you betrayed me? But my God, why have you forsaken me? This is because... Jesus' heart and nature were so pure, so tender, so sensitive that to be separated from the Father, even if it were just for a relatively short period of time, was almost unbearable. And this, Him taking our sin, becoming sin for us, was the greatest sacrifice that He could possibly make on our behalf. We come to the first question that both we ask and Jesus asked. Why? Why? Notice he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And notice it's not a cry against God, but a cry to him. Many people in their hour of pain and anguish cry out against God. Lord, why are you doing this to me? Why are you hurting me? Accusing him, angry at him. Or they doubt God's wisdom in that time. But not for Jesus. For Jesus, it was my God. He still showed submission to him. And it was also my, it was my God. Job said after his suffering, though he slay me, yet I will praise him. And Peter, when asked if he wanted to desert Jesus as the multitudes had said, he said, Lord, where else should I go? You alone have the words of eternal life. And there's times when we go through difficulty, when we go through pain and we don't understand it. I'll be the first one to acknowledge there's been things in my life that have happened and I just say, God, why? Why? It doesn't make sense. I can't understand it. I can't put a reason to it. I just need to know why. 
And in those times we don't understand what God is doing, we fall back on that which we do understand. Instead of focusing on the why, focus on the who. I focus on His nature. That He loves us. That He has our best interest in mind. That He desires to bring us through those trials with a better understanding of Him. That He desires to build us up and make us stronger and hopefully use us someday to preach and minister into someone else's life who might be going through the same thing. God desires to do a great work through difficult circumstances. It was at this moment, as Jesus hung on that cross, that the sins of the world were poured onto Him. So the Holy Father had to turn His face and pour His wrath on His own Son. And on the cross, Jesus was receiving the wages that were due to us. The punishment for our peace was upon Him. Famous song says, He paid a debt He did not owe because we owed a debt we could not pay. We owed a debt that we could not pay in a million years. I don't care how many verses you memorize, how many people you witness to, how many songs you know how to sing. I don't even care how many Christian shirts you own that say a breadcrumb and fish. Nothing, nothing could pay that debt that was owed. But Jesus, on the cross, took a big stamp that said paid in full and marked our souls with it. Look at verse 6, Psalm 22. But I am a worm and no man, a reproach of men and despised by the people. It says, I am a worm. You know, in that moment when Jesus was taken through this entire crucifixion process, he was not treated like a human being, but rather as a worm. He was denied his legal rights. He was arrested and tried illegally. He was considered guilty before his case was even heard. And even in the Roman times, this was unacceptable. This was uncalled for. If Jesus would have been a Roman citizen, it would have been all over for those people that had done this. And many of us have committed the great I am statements of Christ to memory. You know some of them. I am the bread of life. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Well, here's a new one for you. I am a worm. Now, it's not like... A very cool I am statement, is it? We don't really want to hear a message on the I am the worm, I am statement of Christ. But it's one we often forget. And obviously it's a figure of speech. But it takes one of the lowest and most humble of God's creatures. And it's used in the Bible as a figure of lowliness or weakness. Remember Isaiah 41.13 says, For I am the Lord your God, who takes hold of your right hand and says to you, Do not fear, I will help you. Do not be afraid, O worm Jacob, O little Israel, for I myself will help you, declares the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. See, Jesus had to become a worm, as it were, to save the real worms. See, we we were helpless. We were useless. We could do nothing in our problems, in our despair, until Jesus Christ became a worm like us and sacrificed his life And because that happened, he can help us. He can help the real worms in the difficult situation. The word worm here in Psalm 22 is used for the crimson crocus. Has anyone ever heard of the crimson crocus? Okay, well, this is a worm. And if people, if everyone raised their hand, it'd be kind of weird. If everyone knew about a worm, I'd be kind of freaked out. But this worm, the crimson crocus, is a worm that the color scarlet 
is obtained from to color the royal garments of the king's robes. And to yield that, to yield that royal dye, you would have to take that lowly worm, the crimson crocus, and crush it. And as you crushed it, that red dye would come out that would paint those royal threads, those crimson threads of the king. You know, one thing we learn throughout the entire Bible is that in every book, on every page, in every chapter, it's pointing to the main focus. Jesus, the King of Kings. We call it the crimson thread of redemption. And Jesus who through his blood purchased our lives. And in order to receive this sin-washing blood, Jesus the worm had to be crushed to make that crimson thread of redemption. Look at verse 7 through 8. All those who see me ridicule me. They shoot out the lip. They shake the head, saying, He trusted in the Lord. Let him rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. Now, what I love about this chapter, Psalm 22, is that not only is it a prophecy that Jesus fulfilled, but it's a prophecy that his enemies fulfilled. Now, it's been said by a lot of people that Jesus Christ purposely came and he tried to fulfill all these prophecies to make himself look like God. That he wasn't really God, that he just went around and was trying to do these things to make himself appear to be God so that people would worship him and think that he was the Messiah. Now, first of all, if you know anything about the prophecies, that's pretty much impossible, being that a lot of the things that happened were completely out of his control. But let's just say for the point that that's possible, though the odds are literally impossible. Now, how can you make your enemies fulfill a prophecy? Remember, these people, the Pharisees, were the very people that were trying to disprove that he was the Messiah. And yet, here in this verse, they are just proving that he is. In fact, they did everything they could to disprove his claims. And yet, despite themselves, they used the very language of Psalm 22 when taunting him, thus fulfilling this prophecy. Read Psalm 22, verse 8, while I read Matthew 27, verse 43. The Pharisees. He trusted in God. Let him deliver him now, if he will have him. For he said, I am the son of God. See, the Pharisees proved the very point they were trying so hard to destroy. You know, I've got to wonder that if as this was happening, one bright Pharisee was sitting there and he just went, Oh no. Oh my gosh, we are so stupid. What are we thinking? Oh my gosh, we're supposed to be the smart guys. And yet, a very prophecy is being fulfilled before our eyes. And we're blinded to it. That's what I love about the Bible. Isn't the Bible awesome? How it all works together. How it all points to Him. How as you start to look at all these little prophecies in the Old Testament and the New Testament, how they point to Christ. I can't imagine how anyone could look at the Bible and not say, Wow, Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the chosen Son of God who takes away the sins of the world. And this psalm began with a cry of despair, going down, down, and down for 21 verses, and then suddenly this upturn. Look at verse 22. I will declare your name to my brethren. In the midst of the assembly, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord... Praise Him, 
all you descendants of Jacob, glorify him and fear him, all you offspring of Israel. When we look at what Jesus Christ has done for us through the cross, it should cause us to do one thing. Praise him. Worship him. When we look at the miraculous things that he did to cover our rotten lives, we should look at that and say, man, I have nothing left to do than to praise and worship God. Like all the greats that when seeing the glory of God, when seeing the majesty of God, they all fell on their knees before the Lord and worshipped Him. Because He's worthy of our praise. To look upon Him, thank Him, glorify Him for what He's accomplished for us. He took all that pain, all that mockery, all that sin, so that we didn't have to. And yet so many people today are skipping along happily towards hell, whistling while they go not even recognizing, blinded, just like the Pharisees, to the truth that Jesus Christ, the Messiah, died for their sins. You know the only thing worse than Jesus having to bear all of our sins, as tragic as that is and as difficult as it is to realize what Christ did for us? The only thing worse than that is people today saying that it wasn't enough. Saying that Jesus isn't the only way. Saying that all ways lead to heaven. Basically saying, what you did on the cross, Jesus, is not enough. I need something else. I need more. And the psalm begins with, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Look at the last verse. Verse 31. They will come and declare his righteousness to a people who will be born That he has done this. He has done this. He's done it. It's finished. He has done this. Amen. He did it so that we didn't have to. He has done this. The expression, he has done this, is one word in Hebrew, which could be translated to, I'm sure you can guess it, it is finished. Huh. Ironic, isn't it? No. Prophetic, more like it. The same word that as Jesus Christ hung on the cross, his last statement, his seventh statement, after taking upon the sins of mankind, dying and having that blood cover them, his final statement, to tell us die. It is finished. It is finished. So the psalm began with one question that Jesus uttered on the cross. Why have you forsaken me? And it ends with one statement, finished. Why was he forsaken? Why did he go through that pain? Why did he go through the mockery of the crucifixion? Because he loved us. And he gave himself as a ransom for us. And through that sacrifice, it is finished. Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. If you would like more information about what you've heard in this message or about Calvary of Albuquerque, please visit our website at www.calvaryabq.org. If you have made a decision to follow Christ or would like someone to pray for you, please leave a message with our prayer watch line at 505-344-3658. Thank you and God bless.